0: Welcome to the Friday's subscribers-only edition of The Hub Dialogues, the podcast of The Hub, Canada's leading source for insight and analysis into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. On these special Friday-only broadcasts, we're going to be convening Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, for a conversation with me, Rudyard Griffiths, about the big stories and issues that have animated the public conversation over the last seven days. Our goal is to leave you with some new analysis and insights and hopefully some new perspectives on the big issues of our time. So pull up a chair right now and join Sean Spear, Stuart Thompson, and myself for the Friday subscriber-only edition of The Hub Dialogues. Hello Hub subscribers, Rudyard Griffiths here, your executive director, joined by Sean Spear and Stuart Thompson. Guys, great to be in conversation with you this week.
1: Hey guys. Uh, great to connect again.
0: Well, uh, let's do what we do every week on this podcast is save our listeners the, the time, possibly the agony this week of keeping abreast of the conservative liber- uh, conservative leadership race, uh, the twists and turns that are happening. We've had another debate Stuart, you subjected yourself to um, an hour and a half of something. I don't know. What was it? What did we miss? Is there anything important to take away?
2: Yeah, I so I was a little um, skeptical of this sort of You know the elite reaction to the first debate that it was too uh, fierce and it was too angry and too personal um i thought it was all right i didn't think it was as bad as everyone said but this one was actually agony to watch and it wasn't even really the candidate's fault it was The format was terrible. It was really silly. Um, The moderator, Tom Clark, was all over the place interrupting people, telling the crowd not to cheer, which is such a weird thing to do in this day and age to tell people not to enjoy politics. Um, So I I thought it was just Ridiculous. You could barely glean anything from the debate uh, in terms of where we are at in the race. Um, it was an interesting um picture of Pierre Polyev, who I think got his first taste of being the front runner and having sort of everyone, you know, rush him at the same time and fend off those attacks, which is, you know, that's something you have to deal with once you're in the the lead of the race. So um it was great. Uh the the format did everything possible to make it a useless debate, but you know, you could maybe glean one or two things from it.
1: Rudyard, maybe I'll just mention a few things off the top, if that's okay. First, to Stuart's point about um, the debate format, you know, all listeners need to know is that the candidates were uh, supposed to refrain from mentioning the name of the prime minister, which I think essentially <laughs> tells you everything you need to know about uh, the debate format and um, how silly it was. Um, secondly, um, Peripolyev has, um, as listeners will know, um, flirted with cryptocurrencies in general and, and Bitcoin in particular. Um, and uh, as uh, the value of those um, digital currencies fall, the kind of political pressure and, um, that he's facing uh, continues to grow. And that was certainly on display at the debate. And we can talk a bit about that. Um, the, the third thing, though, is that we all know that Polyev's instinct is to fight. Um, that even as a front runner, um, he can't, as Stuart said, I think a couple of weeks ago, turn down the volume a, f- a few notches. He, 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 uh, his default um, is to push back and fight. And, and I wonder if that's not, um, not serving him as well on the debate stage. Let me just give you one kind of peculiar example. He was um, challenged by Jean Charest uh, about his position on abortion, which, of course, was a hot-button issue in light of um, a pending decision in the U.S. on the Roe versus Wade um, precedent. And Polyev, in response, criticized Charest, um for voting in favor of what he called the, the, the recriminalization of abortion, referring to a piece of legislation back in the 1980s when Shire was a member of the Mulroney cabinet, uh, which, first of all, um, didn't, um, recriminalize abortion, but that's for kind of another conversation. Um, but to sort of attack him, um, as being, um, less in favor of choice than Polyev just seems like a, an odd instinct. Um, and, you know, it seems to me, uh, it reflects this kind of challenge that we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks, which is uh, conservative voters like um, his tenaciousness and his instinct to kind of push back and poke the nose of of elite commentators. Um, but he has to be uh, disciplined. And, and this is a good example where the instinct to fight, um, uh, I, don't, I don't think served him very well.
0: Stuart, how do you think these debates are reflecting on the conservative party as a whole? Um, you know, I think if I was sitting in party HQ, I'd be a little bit worried about you know the image that conservatism, as a political brand, is presenting Canadians. First, I mean, I'll just say it: it's a pretty underwhelming crowd, um, and I don't mean to belittle these people's contributions or public service. But if you look at just I don't know the last twenty-five years of Canadian history and uh, what used to be uh, kind of expected in a CV to run for the leadership of one of the two historic parties in the country. Uh, I think it's fair to say that, um, you know, these folks uh, would not probably be on the top of the HR department for prime minister's uh, resume pile. And and then the quality and the tenor of the conversation is is not great to say the least. And now we're seeing debates that are are really poorly organized and poorly executed. Um, You know, conservatism as a movement has problems already as a brand in terms of its ability to grow support outside of the kind of narrow 2025% 20, 25 yard line of Canadian politics. What's your sense of just the overall kind of projection of the party and it's and it's I guess it's proposition at this moment in the in this leadership race.
2: Yeah, th- this was the first moment in the race where I started to feel that exact feeling, um, which is that this is less than serious. Um, and, you know, I I do think the format was a really dismal way to hold a debate. I mean, there was one point in the debate where the question was, what do you think the biggest threat to Canada is? Answer in 15 seconds. And right. that, like this kind of stuff, like, like that is not a substantive discussion about anything. And the whole... The whole debate felt that way where you felt like okay maybe we'll have a good discussion about this and then the format precluded it or just the nature of the candidate's responses precluded it um so I, I think that is definitely the feeling that i got i i am kind of willing to you know entertain the idea that people can surprise you and sort of come out of nowhere in politics and sometimes the person that doesn't seem right for the job in one moment um, either grows into it or the moment changes and then they do seem right. Um, so I, I share that feeling. Um, the, the race itself though, is not doing them any favors. And we're about to get into the deepest part of summer. Like the the Ontario election is going on right now. I don't think anyone in my neighborhood knows the Ontario election is going on right now, (laughs) and that is just sort of the nature of where we are right now, um, in terms of the pandemic and the calendar. Um, so. I think this is a little troubling. um they could come out of this with very few gains except in sort of membership sales and you know people who may or may not stick around and um i i I can't think of one really good thing we've had a debate on uh, in this race so far sean what what's your
0: take here I mean Part of what we like to do at the hub, because we're independent and in arm's length from everybody and everything, is kind of call it like it is. And I don't know. I just look at this this list on the stage. I mean, obviously Pierre Pauley and Jean are the two, arguably with the most impressive records. charade genuinely has one. Um, we've talked about how he seems a little out of step with this political moment, but I would just think if you're the Conservative Party and you're looking at the Liberal front bench. There's a lot of strength there. This is government. I mean, governments do defeat themselves, and these cabinet ministers who could be future leadership contenders after Justin Trudeau are going to have to carry the legacies, the policies of his government. But just in terms of the um, you know, the bench strength of these two relative parties in terms of their kind of leadership cadres, I don't know what the heck has happened to to the conservative movement. Like why? You know, why isn't there a Brian Maroney? Like, remember, Brian Maroney kind of came from the outside. Uh, I mean, he had to run twice to win, but, you know, there was an, an excitement around the party. There were people coming into it. Uh, this just seems, I don't know, small beer, intramural, incoherent, and at times a bit bizarre.
1: <laughs> Are you referring to when Leslie Lewis seemed <laughs> to imply that she thought the Netflix show Bridgerton? isn't an, an accurate historical depiction. <laughs> that could be one moment. <laughs> um, yeah. Let me just say a, a couple of things in response to what's been already said. First of all, um, part of it reflects a kind of strength and the weakness, strength and a weakness of conservative politics, which is to say the party has a very democratic process for selecting um, local candidates, uh, which is a strength in, in a lot of ways. Um, it, doesn't have a history like the the liberal party of in effect appointing so-called star candidates it really is a a bottom-up process um but one of the downsides of that of course is it it, it deters um the types of candidates that you're talking about rudyard from um from getting into um politics at the local level and then um ultimately um uh, running for leader um I agree with what's been said about the state of conservative politics. Let me just say though, um, that I wrote a piece for the hub this week uh, about last weekend's Canada strong and free network conference. So this is sort of adjacent to a big C conservative politics. It reflected the kind of grassroots small C conservative world of think tanks and advocacy groups and academics and think tankers and so on. And I actually thought, um, that there was a bit more energy and dynamism there. Uh, I witnessed intra-debates about how conservatives ought to think about big tech, about how conservatives ought to think about the rise of gig work and unions and and um, drug addiction and substance abuse and and so on. So, well, um, that kind of energy and uh, you know, grappling with first order questions hasn't yet traveled downstream to politics as was self evidently on display uh, at this week's debate as we've been discussing. I've not felt kind of more energized and optimistic about the state of Canadian conservatism broadly defined as I have coming out of last week's conference. Um, You know, it's not manifesting itself in politics right now. It's not obvious how it will. Um, But at the kind of movement level, it feels healthier, I think, than I understood it to be before uh, attending that conference last weekend. And, you know, hopefully that's a sign of, of positive things to come. Stuart, you were at the
0: same uh, conference. Um, you know, what, what was your takeaway? Do you share Sean's optimism that there, there is some energy, there is some, uh, dare I say, um, ideation on what a conservative vision for the country would look like. And then I guess it just, it interests me, like why do parties act as these, um, well, I mean, we understand that they're the gatekeepers, they have these, in a sense, monopolies on participation, um, but why do they seem so bad at times? And, and again, this is historic and I understand it's cyclical. I mean, parties go through waves, but why does it seem that the conservative party is so disconnected possibly from you know, some of the energy and excitement and original thinking that seems to be genuinely happening. If we take Sean at his word here in terms of his assessment, why that disconnect?
2: Yeah, I think the, the disconnect is in the sort of natural disconnect between your strategist types and your policy types who are kind of like uh, oil and vinegar, you know, they they will always tell you the strategy types that if you have a great policy idea, you can't just tell people what your policy idea is, you have to sell it. And that is where the whole gatekeepers thing comes from. This is um, Pierre Polyev's way of getting monetary policy onto the agenda. And I, I think that is Always a very hard thing to do. I was at the conference. I thought it was great. It was really interesting. Um, it's one of those strange things where you're sitting in sort of like a healthcare workshop, and you look over, and the premier of Alberta is five seats over from you. Um, it's just like a strange. And then you walk out, and Preston Manning standing around. Uh, it, it's kind of an interesting experience for you know, especially the, the the younger guys. I was talking to some of them who were um, really sort of enjoying that generational you know mixing that was happening um but that you know you can't you can't win thousands of votes in a party leadership race um by saying i have this great new healthcare policy let me tell you about all the details um that's that's something that you kind of have to find a symbolic way to sell that and i, I think that politics you know when you read you know, the global mail you read the the, pol- the the pundits and the columnists they're always worried about like politics being dumbed down but it necessarily has to be dumbed down because most people are paying attention to other things and they need sort of a Coles notes way of figuring out who's on their side and who isn't um so i i've always tried to allow myself a bigger tolerance on that that you know we we've learned from you know marketing at the hub that people need to see the call out for joining the hub seven times before they'll even consider doing it. And that's just one of those things because they're busy reading our stuff or they're clicking away to something else. And I think politicians are dealing with a sort of deeper version of that. Um, So I've always tried to suppress that instinct that gets mad at you know, a politician talking down to me because my job is to read all this stuff all day. Um, other people have real jobs. So um, I, I think that's usually why that happens. And you have to find that bar of when it's too stupid and when it's just, you know, it's advertising.
1: May I make a comment? And then I want to put a question to to Rudyard. Just the comment I would make is, you know, we could spend the rest of this podcast kind of lamenting um the failure of politicians to pick up some of these new and emerging ideas that are coming out of the kind of broader conservative movement. But I will say, I think those of us in think tanks and and elsewhere also need to kind of ask ourselves some tough questions. Why aren't our ideas manifesting themselves in politics? Are we not asking the right questions? Are we not putting forward kind of concrete, accessible policy recommendations? Are we not building bridges to the political world? you know, it seems to me that there's kind of fault on both sides. But, Rudyard, the question I've been, you know, looking forward to put to you really uh, 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 all week is um, back to the issue of of cryptocurrencies, which I think probably was, you know, if there was a kind of policy substance to the debate, it was probably this. Um, Polyev, um, at at different times in this uh, leadership, has has associated himself with cryptocurrencies and the kind of culture. Around uh, these issues, I would just say for uh, listeners later today, we'll drop the latest episode of From Dialogues with David From, where we explore this question in in some depth. Um, but yeah, just put it to you, Rudyard. You know, to what extent does the d- drop in value of cryptocurrencies raise kind of judgment issues or questions for the Polyev camp? And you know, how do you think um, he he ought to 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 manage those? And, and what does it say about kind of his campaign? um more broadly
0: well and then there was also obviously the kind of explosive interview that David Dodge gave to CTV, and Solomon kind of um using the the B-S-H-I-T uh kind of phraseology to explain you know polyps positions on you know on the central bank um so I think there's a danger here it's you know it's the it's the danger Sean of kind of getting over your skis of probably feeling as a politician that there is this understandably, a lot of political energy around Bitcoin. Bitcoin is more than just an investment for many people. It is a, it's a philosophy. It is a movement. It is a way of, of, in a sense, perfectly aligned with the Polyev campaign messaging. It's a way or not only around the gatekeepers, but it's, it's a kind of um, it's a heroic story of of these decentralized uh, kind of, um, you know, pirate-like characters, you know, disassembling the power structures of the nation state to carve out greater autonomy and freedom in their lives, uh, you know, that goes beyond, you know, simply an investment in 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 a digital currency. So I can see all the political attractiveness of it and I can see why it has, in a sense, lured him into what now looks like an increasingly risky gambit to say to Canadians that Bitcoin is a hedge against inflation. Because if anything, very volatile week, Bitcoin is ending the week up, but it tested some new lows on the basis of, uh, you know, basically a freak out in the crypto space over these so-called stable coins. I don't know if you're interested, Google it. It is fascinating to, to do a dive into it. But the the takeaway here, guys, is that you know you you can't go around saying to people like, you know, here's a hedge against inflation, and then, you know, it's down twenty percent since you made the recommendation. So you've effectively wiped out, you know, two years of uh of uh inflationary protection before you even get to to even to even deal with then the the effects of inflation. And Bitcoin correlates uh with a lot of you know frothy tech if you look at how it trades and and what it's been doing there's a lot of correlation a lot of rate sensitivity so higher interest rates uh, ironically what Pierre poly wants from the bank of canada to restore sound money is going to crash bitcoin Uh, because then there is an alternative that that phrase tina there is no alternative you have to buy stocks you have to buy bitcoin well guess what if bond yields rise There is an alternative. So I think he's talked himself into a hole. I think it probably exposes a bit of a lack of understanding actually of how economics and investing works. And uh, it'll be interesting to see him try to dig himself out.
2: Do you mind if I just quickly, uh, I think there's something else here, which is that Polyev's policy on this is to make Canada the blockchain capital of the world. That's actually not a terrible idea. It's a policy that if Justin Trudeau came out with, we'd all say, "Eh, you know, maybe you can do that. But you know, it's not a terrible, it's kind of a a normal, it's within the Overton window of policies we'd expect from our um, politicians. But the problem is that Polyev has this um, penchant for rhetorical bombast. So rather than just saying the policy, he talks about Bitcoin, like it's the greatest thing ever. And he actually was trying to make the point of the debate that he was just saying, I want people to have the freedom to choose Bitcoin. He mostly has done that, but the problem is his style doesn't lend itself to those kind of subdued policy ideas. So uh, I think that's something that, you know, it's a stylistic problem as well as sort of a more, more of a policy problem.
0: Let's go to the second half of the show, but my only comment on that, Stuart would be like, you know, El Salvador should not necessarily be the policy lab that you turn to uh, to figure out how to run an advanced economy in in you know the, the northern half of North America. I would kind of skip over uh, El Salvador and uh, their fascination and experiment with Bitcoin. Again, I just think the whole thing is just weird. It just it just. Anyway, let's move on. We got so much to talk about, guys, on the show. We want to come back after this short break and dig into the Ontario election. As Stuart was just saying, many of us don't even know what's going on. Uh, but boy, uh, when it comes to policy, um, you know that old expression, you know, "dumb as a bag of hammers." Well, there's a lot of hammers and there's a lot of bags clunking around, uh, uh, pulling stations and yard signs in Ontario this week. We'll be back right after this break with more on that. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Thank you for listening to this, our Friday subscriber-only podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast and what The Hub is all about, providing insightful analysis and insights into the big issues and ideas facing Canada, all from a 100% Canadian perspective, please consider becoming a donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the button Donate. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and a whole bunch of great benefits that come with being a Hub donor. Again, you can do that right now at www.thehub.ca thank you in advance for your generous contribution now back to our program welcome back to the hub subscriber podcast this is the weekly program where we dig into some of the big issues and ideas in the news hopefully leaving you with some new analysis and insights i'm joined by sean spear our editor at large Stuart thompson our editor chief okay guys let's uh talk about the ontario election sean i want to come to you first what was the what was your key takeaway from uh, this campaign? We saw a big policy dump on the part of the Liberals. Um, anything special there? Anything that uh, kind of caught your caught your attention?
1: <laughs> well, the Liberals, as listeners will know, are trying to climb um, from third to first, in effect, uh, to do what uh, the Trudeau-led Liberals did in in two thousand and fifteen. And it seems to me one of the kind of lessons the Ontario Liberal Party has took from taken from the twenty fifteen experience is. Um, kind of doubling betting on on progressivism is the way to make that two step leap. And so this I think it's fair to say, is the most left wing um, policy platform put out um, by the Ontario Liberals uh, in the party's history. Um, You know, even supporters, I think, acknowledge that um, this would amount to a kind of massive increase in the size of the provincial government and its ambitions. Um, but fundamentally, what struck me is the, the kind of nodding to fiscal responsibility that we saw in the McGuinty era, and even at times during the Wynn era, is completely gone. Um, this is a fiscal plan um, where two plus two is supposed to equal five. Um, and in Canada's uh, most indebted province, indeed, um the 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 sub-national jurisdiction with the highest sovereign debt in the the world by all accounts um it's a kind of really extraordinary piece of of uh irresponsible politics which uh you know is creating the conditions for the ford government to be re-elected which we can talk a bit about here uh which is hard to imagine given its performance over the, the past 24 months. The Ontario Liberals at this point are Doug Ford's best friend.
0: Fascinating stuff, guys. And uh, I just feel there's a strange like echo of our last federal election where you have these parties coming out and engaging in these policies which are just completely disconnected, Stuart, from, from the economic reality. Um, in this case, you know, Sean's right. Ontario is a highly indebted province, one of the most indebted subnational governments in the world. And what are we seeing over the last six months? A surge in borrowing costs. Practically, uh, bond yields on you know uh, Ontario debt, you know, going vertical, doubling. Uh, I believe our debt servicing fees in Ontario are something like the fourth largest expenditure within the provincial budget. I mean. Stuart, how does this happen? How do we end up having these conversations? And in some ways, how the heck do these leaders get away with this? Like, how can they roll out these, um, basically borrowing money from your kids to buy your vote today um, with, with no real, I don't know, it just seems like the rest of the media just lets this stuff slide. There's just like, there's no sustained reflection on is any of this real is any of this sustainable is any of this affordable like come on
2: yeah well that traditionally what would happen is you would have a party uh, on the right saying hey we can't blow the budget like this because we're going to pay for it down the road and now that party is in power and doing the very same thing so like i recently got a $400 check from the Doug Ford government, because I don't need to renew my license plate anymore. And, you know, I'll admit that I bought an espresso machine and (laughs) I probably should have done something more responsible, but like, I look at that and I think, I didn't need that. Like that wasn't something that I was dying for it. You know, this, this kind of these kind of checks, they don't even have the same impact that they had, I think, back in the day where, you know, you had the Ralph bucks in Alberta. Um, I think it's just something voters have come to expect. Um, So it is a strange situation. And I, I think it is. First of all the lack of coverage of the election not so much the lack of coverage but the lack of interest in general but the lack of interest from the media to do any kind of real policy analysis um, i think is part of this and then you know this is a really grim situation um, the ndp looks totally stagnant here the liberals look entirely unserious and actually the if you look at a Leger poll from a couple of days ago, liberal voters aren't even serious about their guy. Um, Steven Del Duca, he has less than half of uh, liberals think he would make the best premier. Um, that's astounding during an election. Um, so I, 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 it's it's kind of, it makes you want to despair a little bit. I, I've i been kind of exploring, you know, Jason Kenney in Alberta is dealing with this massive insurgency on his right flank. Um I I don't think there's anything quite of that scope in uh, Ontario, but um, there are two new right-wing parties in Ontario um, starting to slowly collect um, some support. You know, if you look at that same Leger poll, um, the new blue party in Ontario went from 2 to 3%. So they are creeping up. So let me jump to you, Sean, on that, because I I think there's a question many people are wondering, which is just, is Doug Ford a
0: conservative? Like, what can you point to in the last... Uh, you know, four years of his government, which would be a genuinely conservative policy. And in a sense, is he reaping, you know, sowing what he's reaped here, reaping what he sowed, in that these new parties are emerging on his right flank precisely because the size of government has increased. The style of government seems exactly the same reactive, special interest driven, um, devoid of uh, anything from either fiscal conservatism or, uh, you know, what I think we might like to see at the hub, some kind of, you know, coherent growth agenda, you know, focused around these issues that do require some really serious problem solving, like productivity, foreign direct investment, um, tax policy, nothing, crickets.
1: Yeah, um, I think that's right, uh, Redyard, even if you give the four government uh, the benefit of the doubt and say that the COVID-19 pandemic um, sort of blew up their policy agenda, even in the year and a half or so in in advance of the pandemic, there wasn't um, a lot of energy or reform. Um, you know, it seems to me that the government's first budget, which had some nods to trying to reform and control spending, um, was the first and really only expression of what what you're talking about and that has that combined with the incoherence of the government's pandemic response um, has led to I think a, a lot of pressure um, on the right um, that has manifested itself in these two parties that Stewart has been um, digging into over the, the past week um, I'll just wrap up with this point um, as Stuart said, Jason Kenney uh, next week, so we're, we're recording this on May 13th. On May 18th, we're going to discover whether he has sufficient support within the United Conservative Party to remain as party leader. Whatever one thinks about Jason Kenney, um, this is a government that cut corporate taxes by a third, cut regulations by 25%, is experimenting with um, school choice, um, some role for markets in healthcare. Um, you know, a, a new uh, approach to uh, a drug addiction that kind of challenges mm-hmm. the, the harm reduction consensus. Here is a government that actually has sort of expressed conservative ideas and principles in an energetic government. He's under siege, and Doug Ford, on the other hand, is essentially yeah. led a kind of do nothing government uh, and seems to be cruising to uh, yeah. a re-elected majority. But, I, Sean, I'm not sure what it, to make of that.
0: It's even worse than do nothing. It is it's a new kind of toxicity, I think, in Canadian politics that really emerged in the last federal election, which is voters don't even care anymore. They just don't even care. I mean, all these parties in effect are just, in a sense, um, clones of each other with minor you know, divergences that are more kind of theater than substance. And voters, I think, in just such a, uh, unfortunately, callous, self-interested way have just said, basically, I'll vote for whoever is going to give me the most stuff. And I I don't know, Stuart, I mean, I try not to be too pessimistic here, but I feel that there's something kind of rotten at the core of our civic culture when you have large portions of the electorate who are really devoid of any sense of interest beyond self-interest. It's literally like, yeah, I want my license plate money refunded. Uh, if I'm in Quebec, I want my four hundred dollar in fight, you know, to fight inflation. If I'm Del Duca, a buck a ride, you know, on public transportation across the province, it just seems so. Um, I don't know, just shortsighted, and it, it disturbs me. I guess I worry, like, what? Where's the there? There, if everybody is just simply sitting around with their hand out. And you elect governments on the basis of who's going to give me the most stuff.
2: Yeah, we, one of our writers, Steve LaFleur asked for a ban on buck based policies going forward. And I think <laughs> yeah. I would support that 100%. Um, I, you know, I think that's right. Um, I think I went to the new blue event in, uh, next, next door to me, actually in my writing here. Um, and it was pretty interesting. It was on Wednesday. Maybe just say a
0: little bit more about new blue for those of us who are, uh, new to the new. Yeah. Blue.
2: <laughs> well, so this is a party um, actually somewhat born of personal beefs with the PC party. Um, their leader is Jim who has been involved for a while and sued a bunch of people in the PCs. Um, they're almost like co-leaders with his wife, Belinda Carahelios, who's uh, a former MLA in the government. She was booted for um, opposing a bill to give emergency powers to the government. It was a two-year sweeping emergency powers bill that had um, that wouldn't come back to the legislature. Um, so she was booted., uh, they're now starting this new party. They were in town the other day. Um, and you know I've with these parties, you always wonder, is this kind of like there is a kind of insidious um, conspiracy theory faction on the right right now that is kind of driving some of this stuff. Um, and I was just very curious, is that what this is, or is this something else? And, the other new party is the Ontario Party, which is um, Derek Sloan, former Conservative MP. Um, that does seem to be sort of the he's just been banned from Twitter for, you know, he's talking about microchips in our brains and things like that. So, um, this new blue party, um, I, you know, I watched about a dozen local candidates get up and speak, all people who were clearly, from their performance, brand new to politics and, you know, very earnest and sincere, um, a very mixed bag. One was a school teacher, a couple of small business owners there was only one kind of wild rant which i think actually you know the liberals have just lost two candidates for homophobia um so this like this happens right um you have 124 candidates and every now and then you get someone who wasn't quite what you hoped they would be um so i would say given that you know one guy popping off about um myocarditis and insulting the cbc cameraman is probably like (laughs) the best you can hope for um but in general the The tenor of it was about taxes, it was about school curriculums, it was about representation, um, which of course is part of Belinda Carahelio's story, but it's also just a big grassroots thing that you elect someone, they shouldn't just go to Toronto and listen to Doug Ford about where to vote and how to vote. Um, I think that's something that has always been a part of the conservative grassroots movement, Um, and, you know, it was about that. It was about government and bigger ideas. Um, So... I, you know, Sean and I, Sean's mentioned this. um, We have this feeling that no one's really tested the big idea way of campaigning. Uh, Everyone's running on this, give a few bucks here, give a few bucks there uh, manner of campaigning and assumes that's what people want. Um, Probably there are focus groups telling them that. Um, but I would also suggest that maybe people aren't the best, um, most reliable indicators of what they want. Sometimes they say they want things, but really the big vision would speak to them if they saw it. So, um, you know, there was over a hundred people in that tiny room in the out here, um, for the new blue party, they're rising in the polls. I wonder if there's maybe something there. This doesn't need to be a a right-wing thing. This could be something on the left too, but I think people maybe are starting to want something more. Sean, let me give you the last uh, word in this week's podcast.
1: Well, if, if Listeners are um, looking to learn more about um, what Stuart's talking about in this kind of insurgency on um, Doug Ford's right. Look to the hub on Monday morning where we have some original reporting on, on that question. You know, it's worth mentioning, guys, um, that the People's Party got five and a half points in the last federal election in the province of Ontario that actually exceeded um, their uh, their national average, and so there could be some progressive conservative seats at risk if these two uh, right wing insurgency parties um, split the vote. Um, it 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 actually could be a bigger threat um, than Stephen Deluca and uh, the New Democrats. And so you know, it seems to me, even if the Ford government is reelected here, uh, the lesson they ought to be learning from this is um, that they're going to have to govern. Uh, with a bit more of the urgency and energy, Rudyard that uh, you're you're talking about that the challenges facing the province of Ontario are too big for another four years of um, buck based policies.
0: yeah, my final comment is like at my darkest moments, I think that this is all the algorithms. it's all structural, all this like buck a policy it it doesn't come from the strategists. it certainly doesn't come from the politicians. It comes from how we now campaign, which is online digitally, and how audiences and voters are targeted and sliced and diced based on um, their reactions to content that is tailored to their specific interests. So we've lost the narrative. We are simply, you know, a province, in this case of Ontario, an election that's happening between 100,000 different Facebook pages. And that is the sum of our civic culture. I hope I'm wrong. I fear I might not be. Guys, uh, let's wrap up this podcast. Great to talk to you. Have a terrific weekend and we'll do this all again next Friday.
1: Take care, guys.
0: Thank you for listening to this special Friday edition of The Hub Dialogues for subscribers only. I hope you've enjoyed the program. If you have a comment or suggestion about the show, an issue, topic and idea that you'd like us to cover on our regular friday subscriber only hub dialogues please send us an email to info at thehub.ca. also check out our website www.thehub.ca for tons of great analysis and insights about the big issues and ideas shaping our world and canada's future while you're there if you'd like to consider becoming a donor we'd love to have your support simply click on the donate button we'll send you a charitable tax receipt and you'll get a whole series of great benefits and perks that come with being a hub donor this edition and every edition of the friday subscriber only hub dialogues are produced by ricky gerwitz i'm rudy griffiths the executive director of the hub talk to you again next friday
1: bye bye